Welcome to The Executive Appeal, a show that convenes the world's most powerful and successful leaders to share mentoring and career advancement advice to help you successfully transition into senior level executive positions. I'm your host, Alex Trumbull, award-winning speaker, author, and leadership expert with over a decade of experience coaching and advising some of our nation's most senior level government leaders. So if you're ready to reach your goals, let's get started. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull from The Executive Appeal. And I, <laughs> I'm so excited. I have another phenomenal, phenomenal guest for us to speak with today. And I know we're going to learn so much. This woman, Miss Miss Glenna Crooks, she she is an all star. Um, she is the co-founder of the Cogent Sage Group. We'll learn more about that later. I promise you. She is a former CEO and founder of Strategic Health Policies International. She was actually an appointee in the Reagan administration with a budget and a portfolio over 70 billion billion, would it be? Billion dollars. And she is the, was the global vice president at Merrick Vaccine Business. Look, that's enough, right? It's not. It's not. She's also the author of multiple books. And I know we're going to be talking about that today. So without any further ado, I love, I love, I'd absolutely love to introduce my good friend, Miss Galena. How are you doing today, madam? Oh, I am doing so well. I am so looking forward to talking to you. Um, I've been taking you along on my morning walks, listening to all your other guests. And so I feel like I am joining really good company, um, uh, excellent people, the guests that you've had. And I hope I can live up to the quality of the conversations that you have had with them. Look, everyone, two things real quick, real quick, real quick. Um, She's an all-star. So if she's listening to this on her walks, then you need to be doing it too, first. And second is, Madam, you are so wonderful. Thank you so much for the kind words. And and to be completely honest, like I've been... I've been looking forward to this conversation as well uh, ever since our mutual friend connected us. And I I love to just jump into the conversation, if that's OK. But let's, let's deal with a quick formality. Doctor. You're the doctor. Doctor and what, madam? I have a Ph.D., not an M.D., and it's a very unusual degree. Um, I went to Indiana University. And what this degree program allowed is for me to study in any school or department as long as I could get the approval of the dean of that school and the approval of my doctoral study committee to say that I had a serious organized course of study. So what I did was interface my early background as a school psychologist and all of the social sciences that I knew with the health sciences, law, and journalism. Now, I always add, I am not a doctor. I am not a lawyer. Um, I am uniquely qualified to do nothing except (laughs) what I do. And what I do is to organize chaos and solve complicated problems. I never met a puzzle I didn't want to solve, or particularly um, a problem that affected people's health, uh, affected their well-being, affected their futures. Uh, That's what I really like to dig my teeth into. Well, you know... I I knew there was a reason why you and I were kin for spirits. I, I I knew it. I knew there was something there. You know, you have a story that I'd love if you would be able to share with us of 
of you having this natural ability to to convince people to do things. Um, and that's something I've shared. I want to talk more about that, that influence. But you have a story about a circus. Would you mind sharing that story? Oh, my. This is actually a testament to the patience of my mother. <laughs> but I am still here to tell the tale. I'm a boomer. Um, on my block, there were 50 kids. And... Um, when I was about five, five and a half years old, somehow I organized a circus. Um, some kids had a dog, for example, and we trained the dogs to do particular tricks. Um, some kids were already taking dance classes, so we figured out how to do some acrobatics. Well, we held this circus in my backyard. Um, and my mother didn't find out until um, she was in the basement doing the laundry and, you know, the window that she could see, mm-hmm. she could see all these legs walking by and into our backyard. We had treats. Um, and so my mom came outside to investigate what was going on. And that's when she found out that there was the neighborhood, not just the kids, but their parents. And we had costumes and we were performing. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I, I, I really love that story. And the question I have for you. Um, so as I, I when I heard that story, I looked back and reflected on my life. And I, I found that I generally had same or similar type experiences as I, as I grew up. I, I was generally put in charge of things. Um, and I was generally able to convince people to do things, um, whether it be you know, take on projects they weren't necessarily interested in or to donate or or to volunteer. That was a skill I just for some reason just had. But it can't be that you and I just genetically were blessed with this this skill. How do we go about how do others go about gaining the ability to influence and lead other groups of people? I really think that it's about understanding what motivates people. I mean, when we were five and six and seven years old, it was having fun um, and filling the time and uh, doing something that we wanted to do. In my professional career, I think it's always been about um, solving a problem that somebody has. They have a pain point, it's very clear. Um, And so how are we going to solve that? People are willing to collaborate at times like that. And I also find it's very much the case that if you are honoring what they bring to the table. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year round. WEPA has been ensuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or replacement for Fagley and can cost less. Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today. Not everybody can solve every aspect of every problem, and that includes me too. Getting something done depends on others. So the question is, how do you unleash that potential 
that people have to contribute what they already are able to do. And I am a firm believer that most people really do want to contribute. They really do want to make the world a better place, not just for them, but for other people. So um, that makes it easy to, um, you know, bring people together uh, and then free them up with whatever power or resources you have. I mean, the the really wonderful thing about many of the positions that I've been in is that I commanded a lot of resources. Sometimes that was time, the time of a more senior official. Sometimes that was money in terms of what had been allocated by the Congress or Mm -hmm. what a corporation uh, provided so that I could manage um, the business. Um, Sometimes that was expertise that I could bring to the table. Um, But when that happened, it has this ripple effect that unleashes potential that you can't possibly imagine. And then all you have to do are the subtle moves to get where you want to go. I was thinking about this a little bit actually earlier this morning in a conversation with someone uh, because I remember back to the time that I was learning how to kayak. And I remember my teacher saying, if you watch the novices, they are all arms and elbows. If you watch the experts, they barely move. They know how to read the river. They know how to shift their body weight and do subtle things that make the difference. And I think that's been the case in my own journey is learning those um, uh, skills so that um, the smallest thing that I can possibly do to um, uh, help others along the way is uh, what not only brings me the most satisfaction, but at the end of the day makes them feel like the winner, makes them feel like the hero. Because it's it's not about me. It's about um, making sure that and enabling them to go on uh, long after they're working with me um, um, so that I can transfer those skills and they can feel good and strong and empowered. You, you, you know what? One of the in, in one of the talks I give, I ask the question. I actually, I, I'm a big nerd. Everyone who listened to me, FYI, I'm a nerd. Um, I love Dragon Ball Z. I, 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 I'm a, I'm an anime guy. Um, I'll ask the the audience. Hey, so everybody, raise a hand. Who wants the Dragon Ball C shirt? And like, and like, no one raised their hand. I'm like, hold up. Dragon Ball Z is awesome. Like, it's really great. Like, who wants to ask Dragon Ball Z shirt? Like, no one raised their hand. Hey, you in the front. Hey, hey, do you want a Dragon Ball Z shirt? How, how excited would you be right now if I give you a Dragon Ball Z shirt? And generally, they're like, uh, not, not very. Exactly. Just because something, just because I find something of value doesn't mean that others find things to be the same of value. So to your point, we have to be understanding what others value so we can do things to motivate them. I love that you brought that point up. Um, You also brought up something that I I absolutely love, and I want to dive into this a little bit more. You talked about you being in senior level positions and you having the, the power, the resources to support your employees, your staff, your team members. Now, I have worked with a number of leaders who who don't like the idea of gathering resources to 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 gain more power and resource because they feel like, well, if I have resources, then they then someone else doesn't have it. So they should just have it because I'm, I'm supporting the organization, the organization. They need it. What would you say to someone who 
who's a supervisor, who's a senior leader, and they're not interested in it. They feel it's wrong to go after and try to build their resources and their influence and power. I don't understand that mindset. Um, you know, akin to your point of saying, understanding what matters to them, I would want to understand that. Um, I, I did, in one of my own companies, have a challenge because a couple of my employees thought that it was bad to make a profit. And I remember back to the time that I was working with community health centers, who these are the ones who provide the safety net care for the poor, for immigrants and so on in this country. And I remember saying to them, no margin, no mission. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you have, uh, you know, you, uh, what you make is a reflection of how the world sees the value that you bring to it. And I'm a believer in abundance, not scarcity. Um, there's there's plenty to go around. We can get come together and we can make everything we do win win. We can make it better. Uh, we've got a lot of problems in the world. We need all hands on deck. When people complain to me that they don't know what they could do for a career or that there's not a job for them or that there's not a problem to solve, I don't understand that at all because I see lots of them. And I think that we can all dive in and with all hands on deck, we can make tremendous progress for every person on the planet. You know, you know, what's interesting is I, I love again, I love that you brought that point up. Um, you know, so I do culture work. I go into organizations and help them create and shape the culture required to attract, develop leaders. And one of the things I have to consistently share and make sure everyone understands is you said no. I think what was your word? You said no margin, no mission. No mission. Exactly. When you're trying to improve an organization, the culture, whatever it might be, you can't, if you do it at the detriment of not raising capital, I mean, where do you think raises come from, right? Where do you think benefits come from? Where do you think um, other resources that staff and employees want? You can't. You can't gut the organization to, quote unquote, make it better. You have to do both at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I'm going to use this as everyone knows. This is my little therapy session at, at times. So, um, <laughs> you know, one thing and you made me think about this because you mentioned your your senior roles uh, prior to um, one thing that I I found to be difficult as a senior leader, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure other senior leaders have dealt with this. And actually, I interviewed the um, the current uh, director of this uh, CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, Dave Uggio, and I asked him as a senior leader, like, you know, he's a really good guy. He's a really nice guy, open guy. Um, are you in a bubble? And he said, absolutely. People just won't tell me things because I'm in charge and they're afraid of me, right? Even though it doesn't matter what you do, what you say, they're still the fair. And I've experienced that in my career as being in executive level positions, you know, where staff would go and talk to someone else and complain about me at times. And I'm like, but why didn't you tell me? Like, we could have just rectified, right? But there is this fear because you're in an executive level position. 
Have you ever experienced that? And and how do you as a leader deal with that? Like it is, I think like it gets old at times. Like I I can't do anything else. (laughs) You know, it's been easy for me because I have surrounded myself with people who are smarter than I am. Um, I seem to have a, a talent for recognizing talent. So I see my view, my role as more bringing in talent and turning them loose and enabling them by removing any roadblocks that they may face or finding the resources that they may need. And that would include encouraging them, but would also include um, letting them know that they know something I don't know and I need them to, to practice their craft. And I have had staff who've told me that I was making a mistake. And I think when, uh, and especially when that happens, and particularly if it happens in front of other people, and there's no repercussions, there's actually thank you very much. And, you know, this is exactly what I needed to know. If I've got mm-hmm. that sort of intellectual humility uh, to demonstrate that, I think that's what makes the difference. Is that... Is is it is then is that the answer? Is the answer just being able to recognize good talent um, versus trying to educate people to understand that I need you to speak. I need you to share your ideas. I need you to push back um, because again, I've worked with many leaders who who say that, and they're actually really. There's a difference between people who say that and then they like, cut people's heads off. But some people really do care. But because of their position, people just for whatever reason. I assume that even the president of the United States, like people, don't want to bring bad news to them sometimes. Um, yeah, I wonder what the is the answer is hiring those great people or is there a way to convince people that, no, seriously, I really mean it. I want to hear your thoughts. You can talk to people day and night about that unless you demonstrate it. It's not going to work. Um, I think that I had another advantage growing up because um, there were a lot of older kids um, in, in my network. Um, so as one of the younger kids, I was surrounded by kids who were older, who knew more, who had more flexibility, who had more freedom, and I could learn from that. But I'll tell you, uh, you know, and even with presidents of the United States, I mean, one of my roles when I was working for President Reagan was to work with President Carter. Because the presidents were working behind the scenes on three issues, nuclear arms control, peace in the Middle East, and healthcare. I was the healthcare liaison. So I was spent days on end with President Carter. Um, I saw him in that intellectual humility role. And by the way, he was one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, I heard from him what the Camp David peace talks were like and how he approached that, not from some sort of hierarchical top-down, he was gonna fix this, but more from the, the, the position of creating the space 
um, the physical space, the psychological space, uh, the political space, so that these talks yeah. could take place. And that really became a kind of defining aspect of my career from that point forward and really helped me to help leaders who were in some really top situations. Um, I recall your interview with our friend Lisa Gable, for example, and her talking about how she brought people together who were darn near warring parties before that in the food industry. Well, that was very, that resonated a lot with what I learned during those same years, uh, in my case from uh, President Carter. So I, I think you have to walk the talk. If you don't walk the talk, it doesn't matter what you say. If you're a manager in the federal government, do you have feds protection professional liability insurance? Because if you don't, you need to get it. Having a feds policy means that you will be protected against any professional capacity lawsuit, administrative action, or criminal investigation arising from actions taken in the scope of your employment. This insurance is a must-have for federal managers and starts at just $209 a year. Plus, your agency will reimburse you for half of this cost. To learn more, visit www.fedsprotection.com or call 866-955-3337 today. <sighs> but saying it is so much faster. Oh. <laughs> you know, um, Stephen Covey said uh, it doesn't help to climb a ladder fast and efficiently if it's leaning against the wrong wall. <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, that would be my counsel to somebody who's in that position mm -hmm. and feels like they, they just need to pull their way through and muscle everybody and yet at the same time appear to be open and willing to listen and change. <laughs> This is why she's the sage. Okay, everyone, this is why she's the sage. Um, when you talk about, you know, getting these things done, these big initiatives done, it sounds like it sounds like a lot of this revolves and or you can be successful in doing this because of your relationships, the relationships that you build and you and you foster. Um, you you. you we're going to have a conversation about this, but you, you, one, you provided a story I heard about a pit shop, your, 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 uh, your pit crew. Um, I'd love if you could share that story and then we'll, we'll dive into it a bit, a bit more. I'm so glad you're asking this because I loved the um, metaphor you used in GPS, in your GPS book uh, <laughs> about, you know, the vehicle, you're the vehicle and you're making this trip. Well, I'm sort of your companion on that because your vehicle needs a pit crew. Um, so here's what happened. Um, round about 2005, um, I, this is when I had my strategic health policy international firm. I was a problem solving consultant with businesses and governments around the world, focusing on tough healthcare problems. Well, you know how it is, you work a long day with people. You know, you, you know, you have a long dinner, especially in Europe, people have their second glass of wine and let their hair down. Well, these very talented, very well-resourced executives started telling me that life was too complicated and they couldn't do it. And they wanted to quit. Mm. And as I've already said, we need all hands on deck. I didn't want them to quit. And besides that, they were also my friends. 
I did not want them to end a career feeling like a failure. So I went looking for an answer. You know, I don't, I never met a problem I didn't want to solve. <laughs> um, it took two years, but I found one in an unlikely place from an unlikely person. It was the fashion magazine W and it was an interview with Robert Downey Jr. Now I, I know why I noticed that interview because it was right after I saw the trailer for the first Iron Man <laughs> and I happen to like action flicks and superheroes. <laughs> Otherwise I probably would never have read that interview. Now in the interview, he said he had a pit crew of people helping him out, a yoga teacher, a sensei, a psychiatrist, but he says, I need a pit crew because after all, I'm not a model T I'm a Ferrari and it takes more of a pit crew to keep us on the road. And I thought to myself, I must have been in a snarky mood that day. I thought to myself, Buster, if, if you're, you know, he, if, if you're a Ferrari needing that pit crew to keep you on the road, I'm at least a Maserati. <laughs> and then I thought, yeah, he's right. We do need a pit crew. Who's mine? And how are they doing? And then after a while, I thought, uh-oh. I'm on other people's pit crews. How am I doing? Oh, wow. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. I never had the courage to ask anybody, but I do know that there were times I let other people down. And one of the, the things that those times had in common is that my pit crew let me down. And so I didn't have the time or the energy or the patience or the skills to deliver what I was really committing to do to those people when I was in their pit crew. So that's what led me into the study of the networks that support us as leaders. And that's really where I focus now. It's not so much on the techniques of leadership, but on the capacity of leaders to manage the human capital that they have available to them in every part of their life. And now I'm going on about 15 years of research. And what I have seen is that leaders actually have a lot more resources and a lot better resources in the career part of their life than they do in the rest of their life. And so when I talk to people who are at that stage of, I think I'm burning out, I say, um, or I think I wanna make another big leap in my career, um, the, my counsel to them is, is to back off of the focus on their career for a while and focus on the other seven networks that I have identified that are supporting them because any one of those networks can take them down and damage their career. That's, that's, it's, it's really, it's really heavy. Um, and that's why you need your pit crew to help you pick it up. Um, what's called, there's a few things I want to, I want to, I want to say in response. The first is when I, I hear you talking about this, especially in your personal life, I think about you, you mentioned technology. There's a book I read recently called um, 4,000 Weeks. And he basically said that our life is just getting, it's almost unmanageable. Like there is no, the technology does not save us time. 
because, you know, yes, we used to wash clothes by hand. And we said, oh, we got the dishwasher and we got the dishwasher. It's going to save so much time. What happens? Something else fills that time. Right. Like every time we we try to kind of find an innovation to save us time, we fill that time with something else. And so you're right. Like There is so much pressure on us from a from a. A career standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, the expectations to always be right and say the right thing and be in the right place and to support the right initiative, that is bearing down on us today. And you're right. You need that 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 support system around you, again, professionally, but also personally. Um, I, I, I want to keep diving into this, but if you can just take a step back, Maserati, um, uh, uh, these are nice cars. Yeah. The, the cars you meant, these are nice cars, but I, I feel like there's a subset of people who are listening to this right now who will say, well, isn't it presumptuous to, to think that I'm worth having a pit crew? I'm not that successful. I'm, I'm not that level yet. I don't need a pit crew yet. I actually, and I actually, I'll tell you, like, I know people who are very senior leaders within organizations who still have that belief that, well, no, I don't really deserve to have that type of support. What would you say to those people? I would tell them that they already have that support and that they don't know what's there. It's hiding in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And I would compare it to financial capital. Imagine, just imagine that we had no way of keeping track of our money. We didn't have bank accounts and ledgers and QuickBooks and Excel spreadsheets. We didn't have financial advisors to tell us, you know, whether we were optimizing our investments from a financial capital um, uh, uh, perspective. That's the way that we are on the human capital side. Now, mm-hmm. then I would tell them this. Um, if you're on the planet today, you are the product of 500 generations of ancestors since the dawn of civilization. Now, you know enough about human history, you know enough about your family history to know what those people went through, suffered through, fought for, died from, loved about. Because of them, you're here today. And it's not just your family lineage, But think about the doctors you have and how they have a lineage that goes all the way back and that accumulated education. Think about the educators in your life. Think about the architects and what we know now about architecture and how we can build safer homes and safer cities and, and so on. I could go on and on. Now, we're here thanks to all of them. And in my view, we not only have a right to use all of those assets well, I think we have a responsibility to do it too. If we do, we will have honored all of the sacrifices that all of our ancestors made. But in addition to that, we will bless everyone who comes after us, whether they're you know, genetically and biologically related to us or not, we will touch lives and that ripple effect can literally benefit hundreds of millions and billions of people on the planet. So I think that, uh, as I said, it's not only our right to do this, to have this sort of support, but it's our responsibility to know about it, 
and to manage it well so that we're optimizing those resources. You know, I I really love that response and I appreciate it so much. Um, and, and it's because this is something I'm consistently talking about as well. You, I want to, and I work to help people do well professionally, not just because money, because money is important. We just did an episode, or doing an episode a couple of weeks ago, um, on um, on the importance of of getting your finances in order so you can be more, uh, you can take more risks when you're, you're trying to, in your career and whatnot. Um, but for me, it's about family. It's about being able to have the resources and the time to support my friends and my family and to, you know, to do better than what my parents were able to do for me. And it's not a knock for my parents or grandparents or anything, but we want to continue growing and improving and helping more and more people. And I always tell people, like, if you if we know that there are bad actors and there are good actors. If we know there are bad, bad actors learning these skills and implementing these strategies, what does that say about us if we're saying, you know what, we're going to let them learn those strategies. We're going to let them move into those leadership positions where they're going to make decisions that are not taking consideration of people, the impact of the environment, and so on and so forth. I, I, I really do love your point, uh, Glenna. You just... You really do bring it down to the human aspect. And I want to say I really appreciate that. I I want to ask you, because you because you brought this up, not me. Um, you said you're a boomer, um, and you your research focuses on these relationships, these these this networking. Um, are there any? strategies, tools, techniques that are quote unquote from the, the boomer generation that you're saying, hey, this new generation, you're, you're not, you don't throw everything out. Like there are some really good nuggets here that you need to adopt. And then I'll ask you afterwards, is there vice versa? Are there things that this newer generation are doing that that um, that maybe uh, people who are more experienced in the workforce should start doing? so sure it's generational. Um, I think every generation has their own challenges and every generation makes their own contribution. Now, as a boomer, for example, uh, the world wasn't ready for us. Uh, there were 60, six zero children in my first grade classroom, right? Uh, that's a lot of kids. Um, schools weren't prepared for us. Uh, when the time came for me to go to college, there was no guarantee that I could get into a state university even, forget the Ivies, even at a state university level. Um, if we learned anything, I think, well, it was competition. Mm. Um, uh, because we had to compete at every level um, for some of the resources that we needed in order to grow up and be healthy and strong and well-educated. Uh, I think that uh, when I think about the younger generations, I admire their facility to adapt to technology very quickly. But one of the things that I have always observed about every leader is that their greatest strength 
can become their greatest weakness. And so you always have to be aware of what your strengths are and the polarity that one day that will flip on you. Mm -hmm. And so while as a boomer, um, we could be sent out the door to play until dark um, uh, and, um, you know, and, and have lots of interactions with other kids and so on, um, I would be concerned that the youngest of our generations are now substituting technology. And again, what I know from my research is that the human connections that we have are absolutely the most vital and the most important. The app is not going to bring you soup. And yes, I know Grubhub can do it, but that <laughs> Grubhub is not going to come with the friendliness of the neighbor who's stopping in. And this is something, by the way, that's very much on my mind right now, because we had a tornado go through my area on September 1st of last year. And one of the things that I have done locally, I mean, I, I was not affected by the tornado, but many of my neighbors were. And so I have been making soup and taking them soup. And I will tell you that at this point in time, even though some of them won't be in their homes for another year or two, it's not the soup they need. It's the idea that there's another person who cares enough and will spend a few minutes with them so that they can decompress and deal with the trauma and deal with the stress. Um, you know, somebody wrote the book that I might have thought to write called 300 Friends and No One to Call. You know, oh, wow. uh, that's my concern for the for the youngest uh, of, of the generations. I, I'm I am. I, I look, if you are listening to this, go to YouTube so you can watch what I just did. I, I basically did a backflip in my chair because I cannot agree with you more, uh, Glenna, on, on both facets. The first, your strength being it can be your biggest blind spot. Um, absolutely. Um and, and I deal with this myself as as well. And so this is something I, I consistently, you know, my thing is influence. My thing is is talking to people and trying to convince people to do things. I always think I can do it, but sometimes that is just not the right way. You know, it, we gotta find a different way. Um so I, I love that you bring that point up. The the the, the second is Human interaction is important. I, I'm I'm hundred percent with you. I was, um, I was selected to be in the, the Aspen Institute's uh, fellow fellow program, and I was out there um, a few weeks ago. Um, we were talking about the metaverse and technology, and technology is wowing. Right, like they are creating some crazy stuff, um, very interactive stuff. But I, I am a true believer. There's no substitute for understanding and knowing how to communicate and build a relationship with a human, especially in person, whenever possible. Um, you know, like the, you know, talking to the guy the other day, he does business. He was like, look, you know, these people in the building, they, they oversee the maintenance and whatnot. He's like, I came the other day and just brought him to uh, two six packs of beer. You know, what did that cost him? You know, 12 bucks. I don't know how long beer cost. <laughs> Maybe 20 bucks. I don't know. Inflation. Um, but that gesture helped build a relationship with them that, you know, hopefully, you know, likely the future, they, they, they work really closely together. Um, another guy, you know, he was telling me, you know, he supervises his team. Um, he said, I, I do very little work because I, I've been 
I'm there to support them just to be a good manager and, and to and to remove barriers and so on and so forth. And they appreciate that so much more than me jumping in and doing their work for them. Um, yeah, please, please. Can I, I'd like to make two comments about that. One is that I heard on another one of your podcasts that you had become a fellow at the uh, Aspen Institute. And I was so happy for you. <laughs> and, and here's why. Um, every network that you are in has a center of gravity. Now, if you are below that center of gravity, the network will pull you up. So I learned this lesson playing tennis, although I didn't realize it at the time because I just was not aware of networks and things like that. Um, when I played with a better player, my game was better. When I hang out with smart people, I get smarter. Mm-hmm. You know? Now, there's a lot of smart people at the Aspen Institute, which is why. I, and, and not only that, a really wonderfully interdisciplinary mm-hmm. group of people. And you, you can't get better than that. You know, what people need to realize, however, is that if you are above that center of gravity, they will, the network will pull you down. And this is one of the challenges, for example, that some people who are first gen mm-hmm. or anything, first gen college student, first gen doctor in their family, first gen lawyer in their family, first gen entrepreneur, that's a dynamic that they face that they don't even realize it. Now, the next one is what you commented about relationships. So uh, before I moved to the city of Philly, I lived in the suburbs and I had a lot of trees on the property and I took care of those trees. I had an arborist who came at least once a year, checked on the trees, fed the trees, uh, removed any limbs or things, the trees that could could have threatened my house. My neighbor didn't do that. And one day there was a loud popping sound that to me sounded like firecrackers. And I thought, there's no firecrackers on their property. They have young children. They would never do that. As it turns out, one of their trees came down on my roof. It was a Saturday morning because I had a good relationship with that arborist. He was there in 20 minutes. He got that tree off of my roof without causing any additional damage. I mean, the tree could have cut my house in half. Yeah. But that's, you know, and I I have told people, um, um, you know, since I wrote my the book on, on networks, um, that now I realize only in retrospect that having a home caused one of the biggest setbacks in my career because it takes so many people to manage a home. Now, I was lucky. I had good vendors. I mean, if I got up in the morning and I found a leak under the kitchen sink and I'm single, so I'd be taking care of all of this myself. um, You know, I had a good plumber and I could trust that he would show up. I could leave the keys in his hand. He would lock up the house and leave the keys with my neighbor. And I could go off to a budget negotiation in the company or I could get on a plane and fly to Singapore with a clear head. But it was still a work, a, a, a management load, 20 people, 20 people to have a home. And, you know, you quoted my responsibilities in government. When I was managing $70 billion, I had three direct reports, one deputy and two secretaries. When I built the Merck vaccine business from $400 million to a $1 billion, I had four direct reports. Now, I was part of creating that division. If I had gone to HR and said, I've got this figured out, I'm going to have 20 direct reports, they would have thought I was nuts. (laughs) But in my personal life, just to have a home, that's what I was doing. 
And that's just an example of how I encourage people to look at what it takes for them, what's the pit crew that they need based on all of the responsibilities they have, whether it's the largest single investment they will ever make, their home, or whether it's caring for the health and well-being of their children or their older relatives as their parents need care, you know, or their friends or their finances. It, it's, um, it's not just a pit crew, it's a village. And what I have learned is that yes, children as young as seven can get this idea and they can shape the village in a way um, that will help them. So this is not a difficult concept. So once you wrap your arms around the reality that you actually have a right to do that. I'm I'm sad. I'm I'm a, I'm a bit I'm a tearing up a little bit. I'm It's about that time. We oh. we, we got to start wrapping up. And I I know you got to go talk to the, you know, the president of of a, some country or the prime minister, but I I really appreciate you staying with us. <laughs> I appreciate being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I want to open the floor to you and say, is there anything you'd like to share with our audience as we begin to wrap up? Well, I would actually. And um, my comments are going to come from some of the other guests that you've had. So, um, you know, David Noor, um, I really loved what he said. It resonated when he said it's not having more connections. It's having the right ones. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's where I would encourage people first to become aware of everybody who's in their life. Nobody, nobody is. And by the way, that's not a criticism of anybody. I wasn't either before I started this journey. Then to clarify what it is you want and you need so that you can get the support because you are important in my view. You are the center of your own universe of network connections. Anything that happens anywhere in your life and and with any one of your connections is gonna ripple through and affect other people. I mean, here's an example. If you're at work someday and you get a message that your child is in the emergency room, that's going to affect everything around you. It's going to affect your ability to work that day. If you're up sick, if you're up with a sick child at night, that will affect your ability to go coach soccer at the community league. I mean, it will. So, so having your resources, your pit crew in place is really important. And um, so that would be my reflection on, on what David said, Katie Wofford. I, <laughs> You know, uh, I wish every person, every person, whether they are in a business role or not, could hear what she said. And I would add this, too, um, uh, because within my seven networks is one I call the Health and Vitality Network. So that's all the typical people you could think of, doctors and dentists and so on, Um, but also people who help you be fit. So trainers or, you know, the guys you play pickup basketball with and so on, but also people who help you look good. Mm-hmm. All right. Attractive people make a quarter of a million dollars more over the course of their lifetime than unattractive people. And by the way, attractive children get better grades and their teachers give them a break when they act out in class. Hold up. That, that's how I got through school. 
Yeah. Oh, you know, he's just so cute. You know, he's just, you know, they give him a break. Um, attractive college students get better grades and attractive college professors get better ratings from their students. All right. So it's not trivial. That's important. All right. Um, Lisa Gable, you had a conversation with her about carefully picking your friends because they would have to understand what the demands were in your own life and perhaps make accommodations for that. Um, I would like to give you and your listeners a framework for thinking about that. So in addition in my work to dividing these people into these eight different networks, I say you can also make a different kind of a cut. So the first group of people that um, I would suggest you focus on are the ones that I would call primary. So these are the ones who are closest into your heart. You think about them every day. If they died, if they cut off a connection with you, you would be devastated. Now, this is a pretty small number of people, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your absolute best friends, maybe your biggest clients or your boss, those, those sorts of people. And by the way, you belong on that list. And especially when you hear about why. So for everybody who is primary on your list, you have certain intentions. Now, I don't mean smart goals. I mean, generally, you want your children to grow up, to be healthy, to be Mm -hmm. well-educated, to be enculturated into your traditions, and to be launched into the adult world. You hire people to help you do that. They are teachers and coaches and clergy and doctors, they're mm-hmm. working for you. So that means you need to know what you, is important for your child and you need to tell those other people. I'm gonna, use, I'm gonna keep using children as an example here, although I've applied it to my own mother in senior caregiving. You know when your child goes to another home how you define a healthy snack. You know how much screen time is allowable. You should be, if you're not already, asking whether there's a gun in the house and if there is, whether it is secured so that the kids can't find it because they do and tragedies happen. So Mm -hmm. now um, and then everybody else is transactional. The Uber driver, the waitstaff in the restaurant and so on. Now, that doesn't mean you are going to treat them poorly. I mean, they are human beings. They deserve respect. Mm -hmm. They deserve dignity as human beings. But it does mean that if they get sick, you are not going to take them soup. It does mean that if they don't provide you service, you're going to find somebody else. And what happens frequently is we don't make that decision. And I know about my own life is I went out all day and I gave the best of myself away to people who were not primary. I came home to those who were primary, who I loved the most, and I had nothing left. Mm. Or if I have time for just one story, because sometimes stories, this is how I learned that this was important. I was in London with a client group, was a trade type group. There were people from all kinds of companies there. We were trying to solve a problem. Um, We finished our meeting in the afternoon, which meant that the Europeans could fly home that night. There was one other American there and I. Now, we couldn't fly home until the next morning because flights out of London come back in the morning. We wanted to do London theater, but different shows. And this is important because of what happened. So we agreed we would do the show we wanted. We would meet back at the bar. We would have a nightcap and we would trade reviews. So when she got back, um, you know, see, if I'd been in the taxi, this wouldn't have happened. 
But since she was alone in the taxi, the taxi driver strikes up a conversation with her, finds out she's going back to the U.S. the next morning, and offers to pick her up at 8.15. Well, she's telling me about this. Now, she was an experienced international traveler, but she'd mm-hmm. never been to London. I had was in and out of London a lot during that time frame, and I knew that there was a separate search for any flight going back to the United States. The the terminal was walled off and this search would be very intense. And that 815 was not enough time. She could miss her flight. So I said, oh, please, no, wait, wait, not one minute past eight o'clock. You need to be out of the door by eight o'clock. Well, she fought me. She said, I promised him. I promised him. I promised him. I struggled with that for like two years as I was doing my research. I thought, what happened? I talked to so many people and they said, well, you know, she has integrity and, you know, she's keeping a promise. And I thought, yeah, she has a husband. She has two children under the age of five back in the States. She's already been away for three days. She made a promise to this man that she married. She gave those children life. How possibly could she balance them against a cab driver? Mm. She interacted with for two minutes. Yeah. And then I caught myself doing it. So that's when I thought, okay, what do we do when our commitments collide? Because they do a lot. And especially if you're a leader, this is going to happen. How do you sort out where you are going to spend your time and your energy? So that's how I came up with these three. Now you might say, now that I know those three, I want to create, uh, I want to divide that into four. Um, You know, that would be fine. And if you do, I'd like to know about it. That says you're having insights that I don't have. Um, But uh, that would be the other thing that I would say. And I think this also dovetails really well with what David Knorr said. If you're just out building a numbers game uh, in connecting, um, you know, all right, if, if if your work requires that, at least know where to park those people yeah because chances are they are not primary and they may not even be support you know again if if your doctor always keeps you waiting maybe you need to find a different doctor you know that this gives you a way to start sorting that out and making those distinctions. Uh, it's not discrimination, it's, it's distinction, and it's understanding what's important to you in order for you to make the contributions you wanna make in the world. Glenna, I'm going to underscore that last point you said. It's not discrimination, it's distinction. I tell people, uh, my wife and I have been um, together for now 15 years. Um, uh, we would not be together if I did not prioritize time with her over someone else. Prioritizing distinction is not bad. Right. It's a real, that's the world we live in, right? <laughs> you can't give everyone the same priority or n- everyone gets served very poorly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, I, somebody told me once, actually, I will tell you who told me this. Um, you know, the Hawkeye Pierce character in MASH? Mm, mm-hmm, Remember mm-hmm. him played by Alan Alda? Okay. Um, he and I shared a suite of offices in government. The real one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and Alda, Alan Alda had his character down perfectly. And he used to say, if everybody is somebody, nobody is anybody. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know what, Glenna? Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate everything you've shared today. I'm so I'm so excited. So everyone, you know where I'm about to go with this. If you found anything of value in today's conversation, don't look back reach back. Bring someone else to the table. Share this with them to say, hey, look, this can help you grow. It, it, it settled my soul type of way and it, it provided me with something to make me better. I know this can make you better as well. Help you reach your goals. So don't just look back, reach back. And as always, 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 always stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. See ya. Thanks for listening to The Executive Appeal with Alex Trumbull. I invite you to follow The Executive Appeal wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow me, your host, Alex Trumbull, across all socials or via email for exclusive webinars, courses, and speaking engagements on continued topics of executive leadership. So until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving.